Welcome to the Dream for Others podcast. I'm Naomi Arnold, an award-winning business and life passion coach, writer, speaker, and human rights activist. This show features inspiring conversations with those who use their platform, passions, and uniqueness to make a difference in the world. If you are big-hearted, open-minded, a lifelong learner, and are on a mission to help create a better world, this is the podcast for you. Now let's get started and dream for others. Today I am honoured to have Jana Favero on the Dream for Others podcast. Jana has worked for the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre for seven years, where she is currently the Director of Advocacy and Campaigns. Her varied career path has included communication roles in the private sector, including the dying days of Enron in London, working with women to establish social enterprises across the steppe of the eternal blue sky in Mongolia, and leading a campaign to increase the effectiveness and acceptance of women as political leaders in India. These experiences sharpen Jana's social justice values, and her work is informed by the basic belief that seeking asylum is a point in someone's life, not a definition of who someone is. She will not stop advocating until people seeking asylum are treated fairly. On a personal note, Jana is a proud member of the Cloud Appreciation Society and in her spare time can be found on a flying trapeze or on a bike path with her kids in tow. I too feel passionately about the plight of those seeking asylum, so was really looking forward to chatting to Jana about what we can do to progress change in this area. Now, before we launch into the episode, if you haven't heard already, I recently started a Patreon community where big-hearted Dream for Others listeners are combining forces to make a difference for as little as $2 per month. We are still in the very early days, and we'd love for you to join us. You can find the group at patreon.com slash dream for others. Okay, let's jump in and get started. Hi, Jana. Thank you so much for joining me on the Dream for Others podcast today. Hi, Naomi. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to speak to you and all of your listeners. I'm so glad that you're here. I've had so many people in our community that have been asking about learning more about refugees and asylum seekers. And I was very lucky to be able to get you on the on the line to ask you questions, some of them from them directly. Fantastic. Yes, it's um, an issue and a topic that I think most people have an opinion about or want to talk about. So it's always really great to be able to um, speak to people and address any questions that they have. Well, there's lots of questions, so I'll jump straight in. Uh, to begin with, for those who aren't familiar with the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, can you please introduce us to the organisation and just what its mission is and how you're trying to make a difference? So the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre is based in Melbourne and all of our services are delivered in Victoria. We were set up 16 years ago by our founder, Con Karapaniyotidis, who some of your listeners may know. He's quite an inspirational person and, and colourful character. And Con was teaching at um, Victoria University of technology and was teaching social work class and they wanted to do a, a class prac and the students noticed that there were a lot of homeless um, people seeking asylum in the area so decided to do a food drive 
So it started out of the boot of someone's car, volunteers collecting food and providing food for people who are seeking asylum who are homeless. So 16 years later, um, the food bank still operates on a much larger scale and it's still very much founded on the same ethos, which is fulfilling a gap in service delivery needs for people seeking asylum and are very much a volunteer-based model. So we're currently supporting about or providing services to about 3,000 people seeking asylum in Victoria through a range of different programs, including access to a health clinic, casework, mental health, food bank. We provide a hot lunch every day, Monday to Friday, have kids' activities, have a legal service to sort of navigate through the um, quite complex legal challenges in seeking asylum. And we have sort of 80 full-time staff and over 1,500 volunteers who help us deliver all of those services. We're based in Footscray and we also have a smaller satellite in um, Dandenong and we have recently just expanded to hire two roles in Brisbane and two roles in Sydney. They're not service delivery roles, they're predominantly roles which are around um, advocacy and campaigns because after 15 years of filling gaps in service delivery for people seeking asylum and having to grow and grow and grow, we've realised that we need to be doing kind of the, the parallel lobbying and attitudinal change and community engagement work with the community to hopefully be able to change attitudes toward people seeking asylum, which would then lead to change um, in politics and policy. So our mission really is, is very simple and is that those seeking asylum in Australia have their human rights upheld and those seeking asylum in our community receive the support and opportunities they need to live independently. So we're really about filling the gaps, we're about collaborating and it's just we only exist unfortunately because of successive government policies which really do impede on the rights of people seeking asylum so we've stepped in whenever those gaps exist. So that's a bit about the ASRC in a short nutshell, but it's 16 years of sort of very colourful history. We're very proud of the fact that we are a completely independent organisation. We do not accept federal government funding. I don't think they would actually give us any money, even if we wanted to, but we're quite staunchly independent because that allows us to be a truly independent voice in speaking out against government policies, whichever government of the day it may be, and um, we rely then on the generosity of philanthropy and the community to keep our doors open. As you can imagine, providing services to 3,000 people does take a, an amount of money, but we are truly really thanks to the you know generosity of families and people in Australia that we can do that but we are proudly and staunchly independent um, and uh, we work with and not for people seeking asylum also providing them the opportunity to have a voice. It's a shame that you've been needed for so long. <laughs> but, um... I know I know and we always I mean I've been at the ASRC seven years and mm. we used to always talk about um, when people would come in and say, oh, what's the vision of the ASRC? We would say, oh, our vision is to close our doors and no longer be needed. But as the years have gone on, we've become more and more needed because of the worsening and worsening in policies. So we've had to try and change um, our vision a little bit, still be very aspirational and dreaming that one day we won't need to exist. But, yes, it is unfortunate that we do need to exist and that we've had to grow so much, particularly in the past five years. Hmm. And hopefully it instills some hope when you do have so many back behind you uh, financially and you know advocacy wise to keep you afloat and doing the work that you're doing 
That's right, and the you know the army of volunteers who who also keep our doors open. So yes, the hope that I get is from the community. Mm. So how did you get involved with the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre? I know you've been involved yourself in the social justice field from my Google search before the call. <laughs> <laughs> so if you don't mind, what's your personal story? How did you end up in in this type of work? Yeah, I, as, as everyone does who I think is involved in this field, does have a personal story. I come from a very strong family with values in social justice, particularly around refugee justice. Um, my father is Italian, my mother is Australian, and they were travelling in the 70s, as a lot of um, left-wing hippies do when they're overseas, and happened to meet in Pakistan, and they were both travelling extensively through Pakistan and Afghanistan and just fell in love with the country and the people. And then once um, Russia invaded Afghanistan in the late 70s, early 80s, and really caused a, a mass exodus of Afghani people as refugees into Pakistan, it was something that my parents were very close to. We, um, my parents, you know, they had met and then got married and my dad moved to Australia. So we had a lot of Afghani friends and linked to the Afghani community in Australia. So as a young child, I was exposed to the plight of refugees and really what it means to be a refugee. Uh, my parents actually took me and my brother and sister to Pakistan in the early 80s. Uh, my father was a journalist and was wanting to document what was happening to the Afghani people fleeing from the Soviet Union and the brutality that the war there was causing and people being persecuted. So I saw firsthand refugee camps in Pakistan of Afghani people fleeing simply because they would be killed for who they were. And that's really had a profound impact on me as a child and is something that I've carried with me. I studied marketing and politics, so two skills which I did not think were very useful in the for-profit world. So I had a bit of an unusual journey working for about 10 or 12 years in corporate and then eventually moving over into not-for-profit by taking up a, a role in Mongolia, actually in working, looking using my marketing skills to help cooperatives and social enterprises Form and then from there worked in international development and then after a number of years overseas came back to Australia and I remember my partner Ben forwarding me an email saying, oh, look at this amazing job at this Arm Seeker Resource Centre. It's only part-time but it would be great and I applied and I got it and I had had contact with the ASRC previously. I'd been sort of a pen pal to quite a number of people on Nauru um, as part of the Pacific Solution Mark One under John Howard and a few people who had actually come from Nauru then subsequently to Australia, stayed and lived with my mum as their, when they were released from detention. So I'd had that personal connection, personal um, story as part of who I was from a very young age to exposure throughout my whole life. And it's, it's you know, it was a real turning point for me what happened in Tampa in 2001 as um, a young student at university. So I really wanted to be able to use my skills in a way um, that could impact an area that I have passion for. And I just really believe the only difference between me and people seeking asylum or refugees is just the lottery of life and I'm very, very lucky and want to be able to sort of provide as much hope hope and opportunities and fairness to anyone who I encounter. So, um, yeah, that, that's my personal story and why I'm where I am today and, yes, yeah, seven years later still working at ASLC and can't imagine working anywhere else or in any other sector at the moment. Mm -hmm. Sounds like that role is made for you and your story and <laughs> passions. <laughs> 
Yes, oh, it's an amazing organisation. I feel very fortunate to, to work there and be able to um, have the impact that I can in the capacity of my role. Mm, and that skills and backgrounds and personal experiences, I imagine mm. they feel very lucky to have you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I have got a bit of a, I'm often referred to as a squeaky wheel and <laughs> So <laughs> I'm sure most times they're very happy, but I'm very opinionated and vocal. <laughs> that, that's very much needed, though, in organisations mm. too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now, squeaky wheels. <laughs> I know, and this is probably something you get asked about a lot, and that's because it's a big issue, I guess, but there mm. are so many myths out there when it comes to mm. people seeking asylum and to refugees and we could actually do a whole episode on that. There's that many that I know I've heard and you would have heard. Do you, would you mind for those who are listening, just talking about some of the most common ones that come up for you and what the facts really are? I think it's really helpful for people to hear them being said out loud. Uh, obviously the people listening are people that are probably going to be, because of the nature of the podcast, are probably going to be passionate about this area as well and I think they sometimes feel stuck and not so confident when it comes to speaking up and busting some of those myths so it can be helpful to hear them from from someone who does this all the time <laughs> yes absolutely and you know what it is okay if people don't know how to bust all those myths and that's for two reasons one is because there are so many issues impacting people seeking asylum that it's very hard to be across them all as I said I've been to SLC seven years and I'm probably only just really up to date with everything and it changes all the time. And secondly, we have always based our community engagement work on busting myths and using facts. And after about 14 years of doing that, we realised things weren't changing. So we actually conducted a whole lot of research into looking at why people have the attitudes they do towards people seeking asylum. And once understanding the attitudes, we did a whole lot of testing on what really appeals to people to change their attitudes and interestingly what came up really strongly is that the the myth busting and the facts is not what changes people's hearts and minds it's talking about the personal stories so while I don't want to discount um, I know a lot of people want to know the facts because they feel like they need to know the facts to be able to win this argument to change the hearts and minds but actually you don't need to know the facts all you really need to do is be able to talk to people about why you're personally interested in this as an issue and then talk about it from a values-based. Having a values-based conversation is shown as much more effective. For example, the question you asked me, Naomi, about why I'm interested in this issue, I mean, that just shows my, my values. My values are around fairness, around dignity, around opportunity. And I think most people would agree on those values, whereas if you then get in a conversation around facts and myths, it sort of puts people more into... I know this or you don't know that. So I just do want to, um, I guess, make that as a statement that don't worry if you don't know the facts, you still can persuade people on this issue by just perhaps asking people why they think that way because you'll soon uncover that actually to them it's not the facts that are really that important but underlying there's probably a fear because of misinformation. But in regards to, to the biggest pieces of misinformation, it would be around that we are being flooded or that people seeking asylum are, have access to a lot more benefits than other people or that because they've come by boat, they've come a right or a wrong way and all of that misinformation is, is important to be counted. But as I said, it's usually when people do 
um, if they're, you know, non-sympathetic to asylum seekers or refugees, I'll always bring it back to asking why they feel that way, trying to acknowledge it, and then talking about the shared values we have. And, you know, if people say, oh, my shared values family is most important to me, well, most of the reason people are seeking asylum is because someone in their family has been injured or they have been. So you bring it back to that common values um so i'm not trying to skirt around your question it's just really about reframing it in a way that has the most impact and would really um encourage your listeners to do the same thing and test it out with the conversations they then have and see if you know what we've found is it's been much more effective way to sort of counter the misinformation is just to remove the facts Mm. um and then talk to it much more about why people feel that way where they got that information from and bring it back to values. Yes, and that makes sense. I I guess when you focus on facts, it's a bit more right, wrong, focused, I'm smart, you're dumb, I'm informed, you're not informed. Yeah, Yeah. and it shuts down conversations because, Mm -hmm. I mean, I can, someone can say, for example, oh, asylum seekers get the red carpet, and I can come back with every fact that says they don't, then that just shuts down the conversation and makes the other person feel a bit stupid or silly mm. for raising it, whereas they're not raising it because they believe it. They're raising it because they don't have information and perhaps they themselves have been on welfare and think that it's justly unfair. So when you go back to what is that value or the reason they're saying that information, you can have a much better conversation around that mm. than sort of just shutting someone down with winning an argument. Mm. So what does that look like in a conversation? Say they do say, oh, you know, we roll out the red carpet for people seeking asylum. Do you, how do you kind of segue into values there? Yeah, so I mean, it's a really, it's a really good point, and um, we run about a four-hour workshop on how to have that conversation. <laughs> oh, I know we don't have four hours now, yeah. but it's really, it's just bringing it back to um, asking people why they think that way, where they got that information, and. Um, what it is that worries them about that and usually you'll un- uncover that you know that say well it's really unfair and they'll say well okay so if, if fairness is something that's important to you do you know that people seeking asylum um, actually can never get permanent protection in Australia or can never reunite with their family and the legal system has been changed so much that it stacks against them it's a really unfair system against people seeking asylum so you use that value of fairness um, and then translate it into the context of what's happening with people seeking asylum. And I really have found that it's not actually that hard once you enter into that conversation because most people do have an opinion on this issue and want to be able to talk about it. Now, that being said, if it was someone who we would classify as, you know, an opponent, someone who really believed in harsher treatment of refugees and people seeking asylum, I don't think that you're even going to get to common values with them or be able to persuade them. And so sometimes I just let those conversations go. So it's really judging the situation of where you think people are at as well, because there are some people who do think that we should be um, putting people on Manus and Nauru, who do think that asylum seekers should never be able to settle in Australia. So it's also assessing that too in terms of where you put your energies Um, because there are people who believe we should have harsher policies and they will always believe that. So it's about judging the situation. But um, I guarantee if you just start practising it, practise it with people who you know, first of all, and then when you do meet 
the next time someone at a pub or a taxi driver or at a barbecue who says something like, oh, I've just read the newspaper, that people seeking asylum are being flooded by them, just say, oh, you know, why do you think that and how does that make you feel? So it's opening up a dialogue with someone, especially if you feel like there's some shared values there. That's exactly right. Yes, Naomi, very well articulated. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So in those workshops that you were mentioning, are they open to the public if people would like to go along? Is that something they can access through the website? Absolutely. So what we do is we run a couple of different workshops. As I mentioned, we commission this piece of research to really find out what are the words that work when trying to talk about the issue of people seeking asylum. Like as you will have noticed, I say people seeking asylum, not asylum seekers, because all the research showed that you focus on the person and it changes how people think. Um, you focus on solutions, not problems. So having a look at, you know, reworking the current legal system for when people are seeking asylum rather than why people have fled has make makes a huge difference. So we do a workshop around words at work, which are just basic tools to be able to have a conversation. We also then do workshops on, you know, having a conversation which is a value-based conversation. And then if people want to take it the next step and want to be able to have that conversation, say with their local MP, then we do provide training in that regard. So we've got the the training in Victoria. As I mentioned, we've just hired two people in Brisbane. So we're rolling that out in Queensland and we're just about to hire two people in Sydney to be able to roll it out in New South Wales and then our CEO Con over the year will be doing a series of events on those workshops around the country so people can get that information on our website we also have a couple of handy resources like a two-pager words that you could start and stop using right away from the research we found on our website Um, If you go to sort of the around our campaigns and specifically the right track campaign is what we have termed under all of our community action workshops and community engagement, people can find out much more information there. Mm. And you have all those fact sheets as well for the myths and and facts side of things too that people can easily find. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you've got to acknowledge the problem like what what why what are we trying to solve and we're trying to solve that people are treated unfairly and what does that mean so there are some policy asks there as well we acknowledge that you can't just completely remove the misinformation or the facts or the myths it's just what part does that play in that kind of values-based conversation rather than being the focus and the first thing and if you straight away go into a facts-based conversation it tends to escalate or be really antagonistic whereas if you remove it from that so yes we do have um all the the information and the facts and the fact sheets are more around what are the policy asks and the three things that we're really looking for are for permanent protection so for people seeking asylum, If you once you arrive in Australia, you've been through a fair process, you're found to be a refugee, but then you get permanent protection. You don't have to three years later go through the whole process again. Um, the second element is people to be, for their applications to be processed uh, when they're in the community, not in detention. And the third one is around really having a fair process and access to a lawyer while you're going through that, um, which I think anyone would agree to when you're trying to navigate a... 40-page application form which asks you to list every single place you've lived in from birth, even if you're only there for a month or so, it's, you know, you need a lawyer or someone to help you do that. So they're all on our website, all those resources. Mm, that'd be so overwhelming. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's really difficult and the government has recently changed the policy. So some people have been waiting for four years just to be able to apply for protection 
and then they're given as little as, you know, 60 days, 30 days or 14 days to do it. And we have a legal clinic at ASRC and when we work with people seeking asylum to put in that application, it takes at least a full day with a lawyer just to fill out the form. So you can imagine if you were doing it without a lawyer, usually in a language that is not your first language, it's an, I mean, anyone who knows has ever had to fill out a Centrelink form will know how daunting they are. I mean, I recently was on maternity leave and I had to apply for the paid parental leave and I kept getting it wrong. It was, and that's English <laughs> in my first language. I live around the corner from Centrelink office. So um, yes, it's a similar form, but much, much, much more complicated. And it's, the difference, you know, for me filling out a form was me getting a payment or not. For people seeking asylum, filling out that form is a difference between possibly being sent home to danger or not. Like it's the impact is real. Yeah, so all of that sort of information does sit on our website as well. Yeah, fantastic. The other question which I think flows on from some of that is something that um, comes up a lot and that's around how lefties um, say that we've got to stop doing what we're doing but they don't offer any solutions or alternatives and what I just heard you say then was part of I guess some of the more value-based way that we can (laughs) welcome people to the country or or go through that process but are you able to uh, talk to us a little bit about that when people say this to you and say you don't offer solutions or alternatives is it returning back to that values-based thinking again or do you go do you go there yeah we do go there we do absolutely uh, as I mentioned the research showed that you do need to be able to provide solutions now we don't pretend to be able to offer the solution for the global displacement of people I mean that's a massive issue what we can provide solutions for are people seeking asylum who are in Australia or who are in our care it's a much more bite-sized piece of the puzzle so the solutions are around those sort of three key asks that we have that um, people are not sent to Manus or Nauru to be processed that they live in Australia and they live in the community as their application for asylum is processed because we actually already have an alternative model if you fly in by plane and you seek asylum you get treated completely differently than, say, someone who had arrived by boat. So it's just removing that very punitive, deterrent approach to our policy and for people to be able to have access to support services such as legal funding or if they've experienced trauma, which is why most people have left in their country of origin, that they can access sort of the required mental health services. So we have those systems and structures in Australia already and it's been, you know, research has really been showing the contribution that then refugees do make to Australia. They don't want to stay on welfare or Centrelink payments. Most of them are very resourceful people. So we do have alternatives because we're already doing it for a lot of people. It's just that we've chosen to apply different rules to different groups of people. So absolutely, we're very solutions-based, which is um, why what we present in terms of our, our policy alternatives about the, the treatment of people seeking asylum so as I just to reiterate that it's really about closing down Manus and Nauru and processing people while they live in the community as we do for a large number of, of people and interestingly in Australia if someone is found to be a refugee overseas and then resettled in Australia we have one of the most generous comprehensive resettlement programs in the world it's a great program it links people into community links to language courses, to some support to just help them start up and then get them on their feet, we could just extend that to um, people seeking asylum as well. So we actually already have the solutions, which is um, what most people 
don't realise and there's absolutely no reason for us to treat a certain group of people cruelly just because of the, the way they arrived or their situation in life. Like it actually is cruelty for no other reason than being cruel. So a big question from a podcast listener that flows onto that, how how do we get the government to consider, you know, making these changes to such cruel policies and, and addressing this this horrible stuff that's happening? Yeah, yeah. We have to be leaders from the community. We have already seen over the last fifteen years the government is not going to lead on this issue. And the reason that they're not going to lead, and I mean successive governments, it's Labor, it's Liberal National Party, successive governments are not going to lead on this issue because they don't actually think it's what the community wants. So we are really fortunate that we live in a democracy where we have freedom of speech, where you can get the ear of your local member. It is really by just getting a relationship with your local member and reinforcing why this issue is important to you, going out and talking about it, calling local radio whenever you hear Someone say, oh, they're all illegal, they're not worth being here, talk about values, write a letter to the editor. It, it's so powerful when you contact your local member. I know probably a lot of your listeners think, oh, I do that all the time and I'm sick of doing it, it doesn't make any difference. It absolutely makes a difference. Time and time again, like our theory of change is really the individual is so powerful that if you lobby and you make noise about this issue, then our elected representatives will have no choice but to stand up and, and um, take note and because at the end of the day they are elected by us if they fear that they're going to be not elected because of this is an issue it will change and we saw that we did a um it's another report that's on our website it's, it's the Higgins report last year in the lead up to the federal election we went to electorate of Higgins in Melbourne and it was traditionally or it is traditionally a conservative liberal seat um, smaller liberal though, conservative but more sort of smaller liberal values. And so we went in and we had these values-based conversations. We did them over a number of households. We invited people in to come and have the conversation. We talked about how unfair the process is. They were able to hear directly from someone who um, had lived experience to speak directly to the issue. We brought it back to it being about people, about being values, compassion, fairness, dignity. And of the Half of the people identified who came to the conversations as being, you know, not what we would call persuadables, people who, you know, they might think refugees are okay, but, but people shouldn't come. So they were, they were persuadables and half of them after coming to these conversations changed their attitude and thought that we should have more positive and fair policies towards people seeking asylum and they committed to take action. And then there was a massive swing in that seat towards the Greens. It was still retained by Kelly O'Dwyer, it was still retained by a Liberal, but it's now seen as a Liberal Greens contested seat. So it really shows that this model does work and it's just about leadership. It's coming from the community. It's just using your power as individuals, a group of people. We've seen the grandmothers against armed detention of children. We've seen a whole lot of amnesty groups, rural Australians for refugees who have been so powerful. So really um, just recognise the power of making a phone call to your local representatives, making a phone call to your senators in your state, getting a relationship with them, writing to them, and don't give up because that's the only way that we can change. And have these conversations. Don't shy away from them um, and empower other people to, to feel that they can have a conversation too. Mm, thank you. So many helpful things in there that we can do. <laughs> Is there anything that we can do as well to support what you are doing there at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. I'm sure 
donations are very much welcomed. <laughs> Is there... Absolutely. You know, it's, yes, as I mentioned, we're very principled and very proud not to accept government funding which is amazing, but on the other hand, it means that we've got to do a lot of appeals. So I would encourage people to follow us on social media. We do post a lot, but um, on, on Facebook, on Twitter, sign up to our supporter bulletin, make a donation if you can. I mean, we can provide, because of the volunteers and donated food, we can provide a hot meal to a person on 60 cents for a meal. So if you can even only donate a couple of dollars, it does make a huge difference to the people who, who we're working with. Um, so donations, volunteering. If you're in Victoria, we have a really strong um, volunteer base. The positions in Sydney and Brisbane will soon be recruiting volunteers. Come along, sign up to one of the um, community action workshops or events that, that we, we are having in Australia. Um, but there, there are so many ways. But, look, it's really about, you know, donating, volunteering, sort of participating and um follow us on social media and we do quite often send out calls to action so that's a way that you can do it too whether it's signing a petition or making a concerted phone call to someone who we, we think if they got a large volume of phone calls it would make a difference but everyone um, has the capacity to to do something uh, whether it's through donating volunteering or making a phone call or just sharing a post on Facebook it makes a huge difference to the work that we do. And for those who are entrepreneurs, bloggers or um, online business owners or have some type of platform or, or following, which I know a lot of people who are listening do, is there anything that they can do in using that platform to assist the course? Absolutely. Use your voice. It's our, one of our most powerful tools and we're so lucky to be in a country where we can use the voice. So it's, it's write a blog, it's you know, um, do some research on either the ASRC or attend, you know, there are welcome dinner projects which are linking up people seeking asylum or volunteers um, with refugees. There's Tamil feasts in Victoria. Get to Go down to maybe a local settlement services, find out what the local legal service pr um, providing services to asylum seekers are doing in your local area, do a story on them. While we might think that we're in the minority in terms of people who want a more compassionate approach to our policies towards people seeking asylum, we are a minority of millions, and that is still pretty powerful. So for everyone can come together and use their voice and unite, um, it would be incredibly powerful. I mean, I was told a story and um, that after the live cattle trade was um, announced on ABC on Four Corners a couple of years ago when Julie Gillard was the Prime Minister, her office the next day got tens of thousands of phone calls objecting to the live cattle trade. When um, reopening of Nauru and Manus was announced, her office got a handful of phone calls. And, I mean, I think it just shows that, that people really need to take a stand if they care about people seeking asylum and, and people and just um, use their voice to be powerful because those thousands of phone calls about live cattle trade caused, you know, within 24 hours, there was a policy change. We can do the same um, if people really do speak up and speak out. There are also, you know, at any one time, there are local groups who are doing a lot of stuff. We have a directory of local um, asylum seeker support services in each state. So get online and have a look at that and see where you could possibly link in. As I said, if you're writing a blog or an entrepreneur or you have a platform to get to know the issue a bit better and possibly do a piece on it would, would be a huge help because ASRC is expected to stand up for people seeking asylum and make a loud 
noise whenever something happens, but if it comes from sort of unusual areas, you know, creative people, business people have got a platform, then that's powerful. That example you just gave gave me goosebumps just to think that, (laughs) you know, it's an example as well of how we can change when we use our, our voices. We can create change and hopefully we do soon. Yeah, see, oh, well, look, I'm still hopeful. I would not still be in this job if I wasn't hopeful. And as I said, I get my hope from the community. I go and I hear groups who are setting up a store at their local farmer's market every week to talk to people about people seeking asylum and have those values-based conversations or, you know, the knitting grandmothers who sit outside their local MP's office knitting scarves day after day or Mums for Refugees, Love Makes a Way. I mean, there are so many stories that give hope. So there is definitely hope. Uh, I think we all believe that we want to be a welcoming Australia, a compassionate and a fair Australia, and, and we can do that without sacrificing anything that we've got in this very big, lucky country. Mm. How do, do you ever have moments of of despair or, or when you come across some of the heartbreaking stories that I know you must come across? How do you bring that hope back, assuming it might momentarily disappear, and how do you take care of yourself so that you can keep doing this work? Mm. Oh, look, I um, I mean, in terms of self-care, I ride my bike to and from work, and I was actually talking to a colleague today saying I think that's what's enabled me to be able to do the work seven years later because I ride to work and I kind of get my mind prepared and then I ride home from work and I really kind of can debrief with myself. It's like a enforced meditation because you're on the bike, you've got to focus on staying alive on the road. <laughs> so, you know, it's enforced meditation. Um, so that's, you know, in terms of personal care, I'm very lucky. You know, I've got two beautiful kids who mean the world to me and I just look at them and they give me hope about what the future can be and, motivate me to keep doing the work but yeah it's tough there are times when I see what's happening I read the endless reports I know the awful things that are happening to people in detention to kids on Nauru like I think about my daughter taking her first steps here whereas kids on Nauru can't because it's Ashfeld it's 45 degrees or there's glass I mean it's it's heartbreaking but I just have to focus on on that hope and positivity and bigger picture and it's, it, yeah, as I said, it's people. I mean, I'm lucky I work for the ASRC, so I'm surrounded every day that I go to work um, by really, really amazing, good people, and that is what energises me. But, yeah, it, it is, it's hard, especially with the lack of political leadership and the way people seeking asylum are portrayed in the media. But, you know, you can scratch at the surface and you do get little glimmers of hope, and that's what keeps me going. I do a lot of speaking events in the community and going to community events because I'm in the fortunate position that that's part of my job and that really does give me hope as well. And with your colleagues, I I had a question here from another podcast um, listener that extends on that a little bit and she was talking about how there's so much burnout amongst activists and advocates. Is Is there any type of policy or resources or things that you have there to help with this? As I imagine... As you've just said, it's a pretty. It can be a pretty upsetting at times, and you guys are in this this world all the time as part of your role. And she mentioned as well, maybe you get some trolling and hate mail there because it is such mm. a heated topic at the moment. Uh, so how do you handle it? I guess as an organisation and a community of people who are out there doing this work all the time. Yeah, look, I, as an organisation, I feel lucky that ASRC really. Um, values its people so 
you know, we closed down for two weeks over Christmas and everyone gets that extra two weeks bonus leave as additional annual leave. So it's a really time to, to re-energise. We have a roster day off a month. We have really um, flexible number of sort of personal leave and carers days a year so people can have like a mental health day or a day out. So the organisation is really, really supportive. We have external supervision, especially for our frontline staff, our caseworkers, mental health workers as well and we're really you know we very much focus on celebrating the wins as well which is good because you know there are people are getting protection visas few and far between but they are getting them and people are coming back and we also have um, an innovation hub where we're providing employment and uh, education opportunities for people seeking asylum and you know business entrepreneurs program so we're we're sort of not just a traditional welfare model as well we do provide hope an opportunity on that side. So as an organisation, I feel we're really committed to that. That being said, people are saying awful things all the time listening to it. So we try and, you know, minimise that exposure and offer sessions. At a personal level, you know, I still, if I get hate mail or something on my Twitter, it makes me feel sick. I still, it still does. It just has that real physical, emotional reaction and I just have to ignore it and move on as I said you know there are people out there who I call you know we call opponents who are going to be opposed to your point of view and you've just got to ignore them just let it go um, and focus on those who are our base who think the way we do to empower them and activate them to reach that middle ground the the persuadables who is, is the majority of mainstream Australia who can change their attitude so it's just focusing on that that bigger picture but yeah the hate mail and the trolling is is pretty awful you know I like to say oh water off a duck's back it doesn't bother me but it you know you just do get that sick feeling in tummy which is like oh but realizing people do that for a reason it's for you know sometimes it's the same person with multiple different accounts um so yeah we really try to look after our staff um we have you know a well-being staff committee which organizes you know morning teas and morning yoga I know that all sounds very left-wing la la actually but it does make a difference if you feel supported by your colleagues as well but it is tough there is burnout like in the not-for-profit sector the turnover is much higher than in the other sector for staff retention and um, we do whatever we can but also realizing it's a little bit the nature of, of the work in the industry mm. i don't know if you saw recently on tv how tara moss had the cyber hate um mm. series on and they were showing I guess, the brain waves when you read these types of tweets and mm. even if you feel like it's, you know, you even if it's one you've read before, it was having an effect and you can, I can imagine how if you're getting that all the time, it has to impact on you. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, you know, people can say some really awful things. And I think, you know, people like Tara Moss and Clementine Ford and outspoken feminists get it a lot worse than I do and I can't even, yeah, imagine that i mean they get at personal attacks whereas this is more about an issue sometimes it is personal you know like if i happen to guarantee if i'm at a rally or something and i'm there with my kids and there's a photo i then get these oh you're just brainwashing your kids and so then when it becomes a personal attack like that on your family or your kids it's harder to take but yeah i can imagine that there like there would be neurological spikes when you hear that or read it um so I feel fortunate that, no, I'm not 
I'm not a massive target for people's hate mail, but I get enough that I can understand how it would impact people. Mm. Well, some people make a career of hate mail. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Gosh, there are some very nasty people out there, aren't there? Hmm. That's for sure. But there are also some really, really good people and that's what we've got to focus our energies on. Mm. And it sounds like you have such a great, I guess, hub of people there that if something like that happened, you have someone to vent to and to talk to and who understands and, you know, has been in this space too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, I mean, I, as I said, my tactic is to ignore it. I know that Julian Burnside says that every bit of, like, hate mail or trolling he gets, he responds to because he always thinks, I can change that attitude and talk about values. And, um, yes, he must be a more generous and patient person. Oh, look, if, if, it's, if someone comes back to me with, like, shouldn't you look after your own first or charity begins at home, then I, I may start in a dialogue because I can tell that, they're people who are compassionate, but because of a misunderstanding, they feel like, oh, for every person seeking asylum you help, that's one homeless person you're not helping. But it's actually it's about growing the pie and helping everyone. If we weren't spending billions of dollars on offshore processing, then we would be able to have, you know, better options for people who are homeless in Australia. Like, you can do both. So there are times when, you know, I, I just assess each situation, when to engage and when not to engage. Mm. He was on the podcast recently and it sounds like he's doing it, being a bit more discerning nowadays <laughs> because he gets so much of it, especially on yeah, Twitter. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe. So before we finish, is there anything that's coming up for you or for the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, any campaigns or any work that you're doing that you would like to tell us about or that we can support you with? Oh, look, the, the main thing is that, you know, to be honest, we're about to go into our biggest fundraising appeal for the year. This is the appeal where we need to raise the most money and it will be directed towards um, our sort of housing, providing medical care, providing casework support really under, you know, the banner of Keep Them Safe is our major campaign at the moment, which is just talking about people around our community um, who are really adversely being impacted by policy changes is to make sure that they are, you know, keep them safe, that they've got a roof over their head, they've got enough food, they've got legal assistance. So that's probably the main campaign that we are running with at the moment. Um, and the biggest way to help is is around fundraising. Uh, but also, as I mentioned, if, if you are in Victoria, we are running a series of workshops. So have a look at those. Keep an eye out in Brisbane and Sydney. Yeah, just keep an eye out on our website, yeah, so I'll put the links in the show notes for a lot of the resources and and um, the workshops and the information that you've mentioned today. But the the main website link is asrc.org.au, so everyone can head over there and and find the information that we've spoken about. But I will include specific links in the show notes too. Wonderful, and a great way to keep up to date with what we're doing. Sort of minute to minute is through our Facebook page as well. Mm, yes, I'll put this, all the social media accounts on there too, as well as con-specific Twitter ones so they can they can see what he says too. Yeah, if you want to see something slightly more provocative, then just <laughs> yeah. go to con-Twitter, yeah. which is also fantastic. Yes, I'll put that there and yours as well. So thank you so much Great. for chatting with me today, Jana. I'm really looking forward to releasing this and um, the community soaking up everything that you've said here. No, thanks, Naomi. Thanks for the opportunity. And look, yes, if anyone's got any questions, just go to our website or follow up with me on Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Dream for Others podcast. 
If you want to connect with like-minded people who are passionate about using their platform, passions and uniqueness for social good, head on over to Facebook and search for our private group called the Dream for Others community. For episode notes, further inspiration and access to my award-nominated free resources, please visit naomiarnold.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate if you'd please subscribe, leave a review in iTunes and share it wide and far. Let's continue to dream for others and I'll talk to you soon.